Amen. Thank you, Chris. At this time, I would like to dismiss the children that have pre-registered and will be attending Children's Church to make their way to the doors to your right. Pastor Nathan is there. You can make your way to him. As they are making their way there, I want to ask us that remain to open our Bibles to Micah chapter 6. Micah chapter 6. As they are making their way out, and as you are opening your word there, I wanted to let you know that the Lord blessed Emma with a fantastic week this week. Uh, the therapist, in fact, said that the three sessions she had this week were the best that she has had since they started. So we are very encouraged, and thank you. Praise the Lord for that, and ask just for your continued prayers. During the month of October, we are walking our way slowly through Micah chapter 6, verse 8. Just as a reminder... Micah has shown up on the scene and he is speaking, as the prophet does, the word of the Lord calling people back to repentance. That was the task of the prophet. That's why prophets were unpopular. A prophet would say, here's what the Lord says, here's where you are, repent. And that's what Micah shows up doing. He begins chapter 6 in a, using a, a courtroom motif, an analogy, a metaphor if you will. He presents God as the prosecutor giving his indictment. And God says to the people, what have I done to you to cause you to treat me this way? The people respond by saying, God, what are you talking about? We're worshiping you, we're going to the temple, we're giving sacrifices. Lord, what more do you want? And God answers in verse 8 of chapter 6. Follow with me as I read. He has told you, O oh man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God? Would you bow with me in prayer? Heavenly Father, this morning we have sung your praises. We have recognized that you are from eternity to eternity. Meaning you are God of our past, Lord of our present, and sovereign of the future. We have recognized your great mercy, O oh God. Mercy that is greater than our sin. And for that we praise you. And now, Lord, as we open your word, we see what you require of us. And we ask you, Lord, to soften our hearts. Let us hear your word and change us, Father, that we might be a people who truly do justice. We ask this in your holy name. Amen. Every human that has ever lived has had an innate sense of justice. A desire for fairness. A desire to at least be given equal opportunity. I say every human has desired that because every human is made in the image of God. The image of God is more than just our physical appearance. It deals with how we are made, our desires, who we are deep down. That's what bears the imprint of God. And because God is just, we are made with an innate sense and desire for justice. That's why even predating Jesus, philosophers would write about justice. Plato, for example, wrote that justice in the life and conduct of the state is possible only if it first resides in the hearts and souls of the citizens. There will be no just society 
if justice is not sought for in the hearts of the people. Aristotle, his disciple, said that it is injustice that the ordering of society is centered. And even with great writers and very wise men writing, we still long for justice today. Wars have been fought. Battles have been waged to fight injustice. And still we long for it. Political agendas have been built promising the end to injustice. And policies have been enacted to try to stem the tide of corruption. Yet we still long for justice. That word is bandied about greatly today. You can't listen to a news report or read an article on the internet without coming across a cry and a plea for justice. But part of the problem is, is that justice carries different meanings to different people. We're using the same vocabulary but different dictionaries. For some, justice means the redistribution of wealth. For others, justice is only about the legal system and the punishment of those who would break the law. Others speak of justice only in terms of a dream, something that one day may be attained. Yet as followers of Jesus, we cannot escape the requirement God has placed on our life to do justice. Not just to think about it, but to do it. Not just to theorize, but to actualize justice. This is a command that we cannot ignore because it's a command that Jesus himself repeated in the New Testament. In Matthew chapter 23, as Jesus is getting closer and closer to the cross, the controversies that he has with the Pharisees begins to increase more and more. At one point, Jesus looks at the religious leaders and he says, Woe unto you! That's the language of a curse. It's the opposite of blessing. And Jesus says that he is pronouncing a curse upon them. Why? Because they're hypocrites. And then he defines their hypocrisy. He says you tithe on mint and dill and cumin. Those were spices. He was saying you are paying attention to the letter of the law so that even when you go to your spice rack and you see you've got some mint, you'll tithe on it. But... You have neglected the weightier matters of the law. Justice and mercy and faithfulness. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. And what Jesus says to the Pharisees when he says you've neglected justice and mercy and faithfulness. Do you not hear the prophet Micah where Micah said what does God require of you but to do justice, love kindness, mercy And to walk humbly with your God faithfulness? Jesus was basically calling to mind the prophet Micah to the Pharisees. And he is speaking as if those things are still expected because they are. So the questions that we must wrestle with as we come to this issue of justice is first, what is justice? More to the point, what is biblical justice? Remember, our duty is to come to the Scripture and say, Lord, what do you require of us? How does God define justice? Because that sets the path we are to follow and what we are to do. The next question is, why is this so important? Why is God calling us to do justice? And finally, we must ask how to do it. What does it look like? So let's begin with this first question. What is justice as defined by the Bible? And to do that, we must look at words. There are two primary words used in the Old Testament for justice. You'll see them up on the screen. 
Justice is primarily the word mishpat. And righteousness or sedek are often used synonymously for justice. The one word mishpat is used over 400 times in the Old Testament for justice. These are words that go together. They are often used in a way that is synonymous to round out the picture. Like we may speak of a big and tall shop to give a full picture of what the shop entails. Righteousness and justice are often used together to speak of what God desires. For example, on the screen you'll see Psalm 33 where he says, God, that is he, he loves righteousness and justice. Those are not necessarily two different things, but give a whole picture of what God desires. And it says the earth is full of the steadfast love of the Lord. And once again, do you not hear echoes of Micah? Righteousness, justice, the earth is full of his what? Steadfast love. What does God require of us? To do justice and to love kindness. When you begin to look deeply into this word mishpat, the specific definition of it in the Hebrew means order or design. It speaks of the way things ought to be. To speak of justice is to speak of the world as God designed it to be. To speak of the order that God intended. So to seek justice is to seek life as God intended it to be. To seek justice is to seek a world that is ordered and living according to how God intended it to be. To seek justice means that we are pursuing the things that God desires to bring about shalom or the peace of God, the well-orderedness of society, a contentment that comes about from living life as God designs it. You see, that's why justice is much more than just the criminal justice system. Justice encompasses all of life because all of life is fallen. Therefore, we are to pursue justice in every aspect of life. Because all of life is connected. That's the way God intended it. If I were to clear off this table and to lay down streams of, strings of yarn that were multicolored, we would look at them and say, that's beautiful, those are nice. And if somehow, miraculously, I was able to weave them together and to create a pattern, they would be interwoven, interdependent. And what you would find is the colors would be brought out even more. And those individual pieces of fabric, when they are made interdependent, become stronger as they are connected. That is the way God designed our lives to be. Not isolated, but integrated both internally in spirit, soul, mind, and body. But then also as we interact relationally with one another. So justice is seeking to have relationships that are defined by how God designed them to be. Justice is seeking to right the wrongs that are brought about when we don't live according to God's standard. And righteousness is simply justice applied. Justice is God's standard. Righteous living is living according to God's justice. So that means that we must be concerned with Making the wrongs of this world right. Now that's a very difficult subject to wrap our minds around. And quite frankly, this morning in this message, there's no way I can address each injustice in this world. But I hope I can give us some examples and get our thinking stimulated as to what we can do to live justly. Because justice is transformational. It restores back what was wrong. Justice is covenantal. It's relational. So that's what justice is. It's seeking to return back to what God designed things to be. And it encompasses all of life. 
We should be concerned about this for two reasons that I want to put before you this morning. First and foremost, we should be concerned about justice because God is. If we are seeking God, we can't ignore the fact that our God is a just God. Not only is He just, but He loves justice. Look at Isaiah 61.8. He says, For I, the Lord, love justice. I hate robbery and wrong. I will fully give them their recompense, and I will make an everlasting covenant with them. Look at God's justice and grace. In other words, those who intentionally live apart from God's order will be held accountable. But He still offers grace. Why? He loves justice. He loves when things are set right. Jeremiah 9.24 echoes this theme. Verse 23, Jeremiah had said, Don't boast in, in the things that you know. Don't boast in wealth. But rather, let him who boasts, boast in this. That he understands and knows me. So we are to be proud that we know God. But now he says, what are we to know about God? That I am the Lord who practices steadfast love justice and righteousness in the earth for in these things I delight declares the Lord you want to make God smile pursue justice steadfast love and righteousness because those are the things that delights our God and you see this in how God instructs his people to live it's what sets us apart from the world around us in the Old Testament you will find frequently that God is described as the father to the fatherless he is described as the one who provides and protects the widow he is described as the one who provides for the poor. Now, each of those groups, the widow, the orphan, and the person stuck in poverty, were the powerless of society. Had no ability to do anything, to enact anything. Our God champions them. Now, if you were to do a survey of all the other gods who were worshipped, all the other false gods that were worshipped in the Old Testament, Chemosh, Molech, uh, Dagon, you would find one common thing among them. They were all on the side of the powerful. They all took up for the king. They all blessed the one in authority. So here is Yahweh who stands in distinction from all the false gods around them, speaking up for the oppressed and the powerless, saying that he stands for them. Our God loves justice so much he sent Jesus to bring it about. The Gospel of Luke, at the beginning of his ministry, Jesus is back in his hometown of Nazareth. Don't you know his mama was proud that her boy was come home and she had gotten everybody together because he was going to be in the synagogue that day. Jesus gets up to teach and he gets the scroll of Isaiah. And he reads from Isaiah, he reads these words, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Those are words of justice, restoring things to how God designed. Jesus rolls up the scroll and he sits down. Every eye in the place is on him. What will he say? How will he explain this? And then Jesus shocked everybody by saying, Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. In other words, he says, I've come back to right those wrongs. That is part of his mission. And if we are a part of his mission in bringing redemption and reconciliation to the world, then we will seek to be a part of correcting injustices that are around us. Now here's a second reason we must, not just because God loves us, loves justice, but because if we are not doing justice, our worship is meaningless in His sight. If we are not seeking to do justice, this gathering means nothing to the Lord. 
Now, I say that based on Isaiah chapter 58. In fact, I want to encourage you to turn back a few books to Isaiah chapter 58. And I want to walk just slowly through portions of this this chapter, verses 1 through 10 specifically. Isaiah 58. God has sent Isaiah, much as he did Micah, to preach. He begins by saying in verse 1, Cry aloud, do not hold back. Lift up your voice like a trumpet. Now as a preacher, you've got to love it when God says, don't hold back. And Isaiah doesn't. God says, declare to my people their transgressions. Declare to them their sins. Yet they seek me daily and delight to know my ways. As if, now I have that in parentheses in my Bible to draw attention to it. They delight to know my ways as if they were a nation that did righteousness. Now remember, righteousness and justice are synonymous. Because notice what he says in verse 2. As if they were a nation that did righteousness and did not forsake the judgment. That word judgment is the word mishpat, justice. So they're trying to worship like there are people who are seeking justice, who are seeking righteousness. Now the people respond in verse 3. Why have we fasted and you see it not? Why have we humbled ourselves and you take no knowledge of it? In other words, why are we worshiping but our lives are void of your power? Why are we praying and nothing is happening? God answers. Behold, in the day of your fast, you seek your own pleasure and oppress all your workers. Behold, you fast only to quarrel and to fight and to hit with a wicked fist. Fasting like yours this day will not make your voice to be heard on high. Is this, is such the fast that I choose a day for a person to humble himself? It's to bow down with his head like a reed and to spread sackcloth and ashes under him. Will you call this a fast, a day acceptable to the Lord? Look at verse 6. Is this not the fast that I choose? To loose the bonds of wickedness, to undo the straps of the yoke, to let the oppressed go free, and to break every yoke? Is it not to share your bread with the hungry and bring the homeless poor into your house when you see the naked to cover him and not to hide yourself from your own flesh? Then shall your light break forth like the dawn, and your healing shall spring up speedily. Your righteousness shall go before you. The glory of the Lord shall be your rear guard. Then shall you call, and the Lord will answer. You shall cry, and he will say, Here. I am. In other words, when we take doing justice seriously, we will see a difference in our prayer life and our walk with God. There will be an intensity in our times of worship. Why? Because then we are pursuing the things that delight God. Therefore, we need to do justice. And once again, I recognize this is a complex issue. There's no way that I can go into depth and deal scripturally with every instance of injustice. So let me do what I can in a very broad way. Hopefully giving us some some ideas on how we can move forward. I would begin here individually. Because remember, justice involves every aspect of our being. We must begin doing justice by realizing the value of every person. Every person. We must speak out against the sin of racism and say that every person, no matter skin color, no matter ethnicity, no matter where they are from, what they have, they have value in the eyes of God. That's the starting point. You see, our value as humans is not based on what we can produce or what we have. It's based on the fact that we are made in His image. I want to show you a picture on the screen. 
See if you can, those that have been here at the other two services, you can't answer this question. Does anybody recognize this house? No? I appreciate the candor. Anyone want to take a guess? It's Graceland. That's the home of Elvis Presley in Memphis. Second most visited house in the United States of America. Now you look at that and quite frankly, as mansions go, it's not that big. I mean, there are houses in Johnson City, quite frankly, that are much larger and more valuable than Graceland. So why? Why is this place held in esteem? Why is it valued? Is it not because of who owned it? Is it not because of the one whose name is attached to it that it has value? That's why we recognize that humanity, all humanity, is valuable. Why? We are made in the image of God. God's name is attached to us. So we recognize the value of that. And that means we must start with our own hearts and minds. What are our attitudes toward those that are different? Now, I look back at my family tree and like most of us, there are parts of the family tree that we'd love to, to cut down and remove. There are parts of McMinn Canyon where you go and say the name Herod, it may get you punched in the mouth. But there are also some things in my family tree that I'm very proud of. My father told me this story frequently about a time when he was a little boy, maybe eight, nine years old. It was the late 1930s. The Depression, of course, was wreaking havoc across the world. The United States was suffering. My grandfather was a sawmiller, would go up with a team of mules up into the hills, cut down timber, bring it back and do his best to trim it into usable lumber. And at this time, things were going pretty well and he had several men of color working with him. They weren't far from the house on this particular day and dad had been doing what he could around there and they broke for lunch and my papa said, y'all come on over to the house. Maud, that was my grandmother's name, had prepared some lunch. He was going to feed his crew. The black men came through, got their plates, and then went outside. Dad said he watched my grandfather step out the door and say, Hey, where are y'all going? One of them spoke up and said, Well, we didn't think you'd want us eating in the house with you all. And my grandfather said, No, if you work with us, you can eat with us. Come on in. Get a chair at the table. That's the attitude we must carry forth. That in our sphere of influence, those that are around us, how are we interacting with them? What prejudices do we carry? When we look at a person of a different color or of a different nationality, what comes to our mind? Are our first thoughts that they are a person made in the image of God and have value? Or do we succumb to our baser instincts and begin to think the worst? We must start where we are and how we interact with people. We also in this day and time must speak out against those who are or those who would use their power to oppress others. See, that's where our Christian voice must carry the weight of thus saith the Lord. You look at the unrest that has, has wrecked our nation in the past several months. We must carry out a twin mandate as the church. We must speak, for example, from Romans 13 to say there are structures of government and authority that God has put in place to prevent us from falling into chaos. 
But at the same time, we must be quick to speak and say that those structures of government are made up of sinful individuals. And if there is a person within a place of power that uses that power to abuse others, they must be held accountable. We would stand as Christians to say, yes, God has given authority and those who abuse it must be held into account. That is living justly. It means we must also think in terms of not just individually, but think in terms of within our society, are there things that are repressing others that we can speak to? It's hard to believe that even in the United States of America, even here in Washington County, illiteracy, for example, this is just one example, is still very, very prevalent. See, sometimes we look at the poor, those who would be considered poverty level, and our first instinct is to say, well, it's just laziness. And sometimes that may be true. But according to research throughout the world, you can find this in the book The Locust Effect, the majority of poverty is either caused by one, natural disasters where people who are living from paycheck to paycheck can never recoup, recover from, or from the oppression brought about by corrupt governments. You recognize that one of the causes of poverty in the United States is illiteracy. You look at Trinity, for example, and we are a, a middle-class congregation for the most part. Children born in our families are three to four hundred more times likely to learn to read than those born in the inner city that do not have the access that we have to education. So what we do is we take a look and we say, how could we make a difference in that? How could we help break this cycle of poverty by doing something like teaching someone to read? Now, we don't blame the child. I don't think any of us would go to an illiterate seven-year-old and say, why don't you pull yourself up by your bootstrap, son, and learn how to read? We would take a look and say, are there family issues? What's going on? How can we be a part of breaking that cycle? You see, the Scripture teaches us to at least give opportunity when you try to read the scripture, you'll find that it really doesn't fall down on a capitalist side or a socialist side. The scripture, the scripture kind of comes in the middle. What I mean is this. Take, for example, the practice of gleaning. If you're not familiar with that, in the Old Testament, farmers, it was a rural society, would harvest their grain, but then they would leave bits of grain around the edges so that those that were poor could have the opportunity to come and gather it. But you'll notice they didn't bag it up and necessarily hand it to them. They presented the opportunity. I think that's part of justice. To work and at least give the opportunity. And if there are systemic issues that can be addressed, we work to address them. But what you will find is that those that were unable, the widows, the orphans, they did take extra measures to help. That is us doing justice. That is looking to say, what can we do to make a difference and to break the cycle. Now some would throw up their hands and say, but Pastor Jesus himself said, for example, you'll have the poor with you always. And until the Lord comes back, yes. But that doesn't absolve us of our responsibility to make a difference where we are. Because we want to be a lot showing the grace of God and the justice of God in how we interact and how we speak against issues that would cause the oppression of others. Our God is a just God. He speaks out against wrongs. And He reminds us that He will hold those who practice wrong in account. 
this is mind-boggling to me, but did you know in March of this year, a Nazi war criminal was arrested in Oak Ridge, Tennessee? He's 94 years old. Documents were unearthed in Berlin, listing the guards who had worked at one of the concentration camps. One thing led to another, and he has been arrested and deported back to Germany to be put on trial. Justice. Our God will make things right. That is our hope and our firm belief. And until that day when he comes and returns in Jesus Christ, he calls us to be his hands and his feet that we would do justice. Would you pray with me right now? Father, it's overwhelming to preach about this and to think about the call that you have placed upon our lives. Lord, the issues are difficult. And I pray, Father, that you would give us a vision of doing justice. Help us to start where we are and how we treat people and how we see others. Help us, Father, to put into practice what you taught in James, that we would be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to anger. And Father, we pray for those that are suffering. We pray, Father, that we can indeed Offer the living water to those that are thirsty. Grant this, O Lord, we pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.